Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and we're thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. We have a variety of exhibitions on view now, including the powerful anti-Semitism 1919 to 1939, which just opened yesterday, Silicon City Computer History Made in New York, and the family exhibit, the wonderful family exhibit, The Art and Whimsy of Mo Willems. So if you uh, haven't seen any of these yet, please return. We also have all of the exhibitions and all of the upcoming programs listed in our brochure. If you don't have one, please pick one up. And if you are not yet a member, please consider being one. Membership supports all these programs that we do. We always like to ask how many members do we have with us in the audience right now? It looks like one person is not a member. Um, <laughs> so. Non-members, we appreciate you too. I just want you to know we appreciate everyone who is sitting in the seats tonight. Tonight's program, Dissent and the Supreme Court, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And we'd, we always want to thank Mr. Schwartz for all his support that has helped us invite so many prominent authors and historians to the Historical Society. And we also want to recognize all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a hand. So the program tonight will last an hour and include a question and answer session, and there'll be a formal book signing afterward following the program, and copies of um, Melvin Urofsky's book, Dissent and the Supreme Court, will be available in our museum store, which is on the, well, I don't need to tell you, your members, you already know. Oh, wait for the one member. 77th Street side is our museum store book signing on our Central Park West side. And we are thrilled to welcome Melvin Urofsky to New York Historical Society. He is Professor Emeritus of History at Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University, where he was chair of the Department of History. He is the co-editor of the five-volume collection of Louis Brandeis, or is it Louis Brandeis? Louis Brandeis's Letters and the author of several books, including his latest, Dissent in the Supreme Court. We are also delighted to welcome our moderator this evening, Dahlia Lithwick. Ms. Lithwick is senior editor at Slate, where she writes the Supreme Court dispatches and jurisprudence columns. Her work has appeared in many national publications, including the New York Times, the New Yorker, and the Washington Post. Before we begin, we ask that you turn off your cell phones, electronic beepers, and now, please welcome our guests. Thank you. Go ahead, Mel. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you. Well, I want to thank Dale. I want to thank the Historical Society, and to thank. Mel, for this tremendous book, which uh, I really enjoyed, I think in some part because we are a little bit trapped in a moment in history where we think dissents are always what dissents are now. And they start with Justice Scalia saying, argle bargle, and they move up from there. And so it's nice to have a book that frames this in a deeper way. So um, it's a great honor to be here. and. <clears throat> 
as Dale said, we're going to just have a back and forth colloquy and then happily take questions from the audience. Um, so I think, Mel, I want to start with the kind of existential Talmudic question that you begin the book with, which is, why dissent? Why in a corpus of law that is focused in some sense on its own legitimacy, do we even allow dissenting voices to undermine the force of what it is that we're trying to say? Well, there's a, a long history here. Um, one has to recall that until the late 1930s, 90% of all Supreme Court cases came down without dissent. Or if some members of the court didn't agree with the opinion, they dissented silently. There was no written uh, dissent. And part of what happened is that up until 1925, uh, the court had to take a wide variety of garbage cases. There's really uh, very little. Uh, were cases that today would be heard in a magistrate's court in a small town. And as Louis Brandeis said, it's more important to decide these cases than to decide them right. Essentially, decide them and get rid of them. Uh, then in 1925, uh, Congress passed the Judges' Bill, which essentially made the Supreme Court into a constitutional court, which was much, it had always um, had constitutional decisions, but now it was its main business, constitutional interpretation and statutory interpretation. And now it was important to get it right as well as to decide it. And as members of the court developed a consistent jurisprudence, they sometimes found themselves on the short end of the vote. Um, I'm always reminded that on the very first day of court, uh, Justice Brennan used to call his clerks together and ask them a question. What is the most important number here? And he would go like that. Five, that's the number of votes that you need. And um, while there had been dissents before, now they took on a different tone because uh, Brandeis would say, my faith in time is great. So he would write not so much to convince the members of the court he was sitting with, but for the future. And in his instance and in others, that faith worked out. As you know, Charles Edmonds Hughes once said, the dissenter is talking to down the road when maybe they'll have a better idea of what it should be. And uh, then, of course, you, you have the situation now, which I blame on Felix Frankfurter for the most part. Uh, Frankfurter had not only diarrhea of the mouth, but of the pen. And um, every dissent he wrote was a law review article. And um, he so annoyed some people like Douglas and Black that they had the right back. And that's why we have a court now where you can sometimes have seven, eight, or nine opinions on a case most of which I would say are quickly and legitimately forgotten. In Europe, by the way, up until fairly recently, a number of the national courts there did not allow dissents. Um, if there was a dissent, um, it was not known. It was the court handed down an interpretation. And there, was, there are still a number of people in the United States who believe that institutionally, it is better for the court to speak in one voice. Certainly, Chief Justice Roberts has that hope, and he rather naively told the Senate confirmation hearing that he wanted to get back to where it used to be, and um, it hasn't. And, and, and it's probably worth flagging that at some 
really seminal moments in constitutional history, one of the things that a chief justice could do was wrangle a unanimous opinion, right? I'm thinking of Brown. I'm thinking of United States versus Nixon. When it becomes institutionally a matter of the court's prerogatives to say what the law is, the chief takes the posture, I think, then, sort of in keeping with your latter point, which is there is going to be no dissenter today. No. I mean, um, Earl Warren worked for seven months uh, to get everybody on board and with no separate opinions. But that, I think, um, is one of the lessons that, uh, out of the book. We don't have anybody on the court today with the political experience that Earl Warren did. And it is, a, I think, a major failure. Um, one of the greatest opinions written in the 20th century was uh, Robert Jackson's concurrence in the Steele case. Uh, nobody on the court today could write that opinion. None of them today have had the experience of government the way that Jackson did. Um, and I think that's what's missing, that um, a real sense of how government actually works. Maybe talk for one second about the steel seizure case, just oh, to locate it. us all. Um, in 1950, Harry Truman, and we were still, still in the Korean War then, the steel workers threatened to go out on strike, and he ordered his Secretary of Commerce, Sawyer, to seize the steel mills. And um, this has been something that had been done during the war occasionally, and he thought, if Roosevelt could do it during the war, I can do it during the Korean War. But there was a very big difference between that. It went to the Supreme Court, where Truman thought he was going to win. After all, he had three or four appointees there, and the Chief Justice was his friend and had told them ahead of time, oh, we'll take care of that. That's not a problem. And um, turned out a majority of the court said, no, you don't have the option to do this. And um, the Jackson concurrence in that, uh, as I said, is one of the great opinions of the 20th century, and, and how he limbed out the powers of the Congress and the powers of the president. Only someone who really knows how the government works could have written that. It's probably worth flagging, you all know this, but it's always interesting, that with Sandra Day O'Connor's departure from the court, we lost our last person who held any sort of elected office other than maybe fourth grade treasurer. Um, you know, we just do not have Somebody, and I think in some ways, when you look at Citizens United, you know, you look at how doctrine is inflected by a lack of experience about sure. how politics works. It's really clear that that kind of technical knowledge of how governance happens is really absent. Presidents used to appoint senators. Uh, Charles Evans Hughes, you know, who later became chief justice, had been elected governor of New York, almost became president. Um, Brandeis never held elected office, but he was Woodrow Wilson's close advisor and certainly knew how the government worked. And Charles, uh, William Howard Taft had been president. And when important cases came along, people like Hughes and Taft were able to, as Taft put it, mask the court when it was important. And I think most historians give Earl Warren's political background the credit for what he was able to do in Brown. Talk a little bit about um one theme that you pull out in your book that I think is interesting is the ways in which, for lack of a better word, Mel, I'm going to say ego, 
begins to become a part of the trend toward more dissenting. And I think you kind of carbon date this at the 1840s and you say people start really- 1940s. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, no. 1940s. And, and that they just don't want to associate well, themselves with bad opinions. Um, the chapter that we're talking about is entitled The Prima Donnas. <laughs> and these included Felix Frankfurter, Hugo Black, William O. Douglas, and Robert Jackson. Um, Frankfurter and Jackson were you know, allies. Douglas and Black were. Uh, Frankfurter once called um, Douglas the worst person he had ever met in his life. And so if Black would say something, Frankfurter had to say no. And if Frankfurter said something, Black would say no. And then Douglas would join in, and Robert said what you wound up with, well, in the steel seizure case, you had, I mean, six or seven opinions. Um, and that continued, unfortunately. Um, we haven't had, uh, now if we get one half of all the cases in a given term unanimous, everybody considers this absolutely amazing. Um, what's going to happen this term, of course, is a whole different story. Let's hold that for the end when we can all have our nervous breakdown together. <laughs> um, so, so I, I want to talk about what I think is the central theme of the book, which is the role of dissent in what you call constitutional dialogue. And I want to sort of work through the layers of constitutional dialogue because it seems to me that there's kind of nested layers of people talking to people right. in a dissent. And the first layer is the court talking to the court. Right. The justices talking amongst themselves, correct? Right. How much does a dissent bring people over, create consensus? How much does this dissent change I don't minds? know if we have any sort of statistical analysis, but we have a lot of anecdotal evidence. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, when she talks about dissent, always uses this example that there was one time when my dissent actually turned into the majority opinion, that during the time that it was being circulated. But she also said, uh, she uses this example in the um, VMI case, that's United States versus Virginia Military Institute, where um, VMI was all male, and uh, the case held that they had to let women in. And she was given the, the assignment from the majority opinion, and she said, my opinion was ever so much better because of Justice Scalia's dissent. I had to answer the points that he made. So if nothing else, the dissent can shape the majority opinion. Scalia, in turn, has said, I always feel most confident when I'm speaking for the court if I feel I've answered the main points that the dissent has brought up. So um, there's always this give and take. And um, I think it was either Breyer or Kennedy, I don't remember, one said that the best dissent you never see because if the majority has adjusted itself to take in the main points, has perhaps limited its reach so it doesn't you know, go every place, a dissent will be withdrawn. Uh, so yeah, there, that's the first part of the dialogue and it's ongoing, it happens with just about every case. Remember, when you speak for the majority, you're not speaking for yourself. Um, and especially in a five to four case, you've got to make sure that you know, you hold on to your five votes. Um, 
I once had the opportunity uh, for a book I was doing, Justice Brennan let me look at his case file for that. And he went through seven iterations of his opinion trying to hold on to Sandra Day O'Connor. It was an affirmative action case. And in the end, while she voted for the result, she wrote a concurrence because she, could, which she wouldn't go as far as Brennan was willing to go. And he couldn't go less than that because of his other votes. So that, um, but as everybody who dissents in Scalia used to say, um, when I dissent, I speak for myself. Uh, William O. Douglas once said it was, uh, dissent was the only thing that kept him sane on the court. So it's... Uh, so, so the corollary to that question is, we know that dissent can have the opposite effect. We know that a sharp dissent cannot only lose you a vote, but it can use, lose a longtime ally. And I think there's pretty good evidence to suggest that some of, for instance, Justice Scalia's sharp words directed at Justice O'Connor, for instance, really did create fissures. Yes. Um, if you, every now and then, uh, I've had a chance to speak to some justice, and I, I asked a couple of times, as tactfully as I could, um, and as my brother-in-law knows how tactful I am, uh, <laughs> um, about that, and they play it down. Uh, and the reason they play it down is, again, that number five, the person whom you're dissenting today, you may need that person for a vote tomorrow. So for the most part, you try not to make a permanent enemy. Um, Scalia, I think, especially later on, just didn't give a, a damn anymore. And um, his attacks on Kennedy uh, especially on the homosexual cases and the same-sex marriage cases, were just vicious. They were vicious, and they really, it was hard to imagine. I remember when this term started in October, and Justice Breyer went on the TV talk show circuit because he was pushing a new book, and he said, oh, no, we don't take it personally. And I remember thinking, are you made of lead? I mean, to be, you know, told that you're, you know, you should put your head in a bag if you <laughs> sign up uh, with this opinion. It was very personal. Well, there's another thing that a lot of us probably aren't aware of. Uh, uh, Linda Greenha um, has been uh, watching. Linda is the former Supreme Court reporter for the New York Times, won a Pulitzer Prize for it. And she's now at Yale Law School. And uh, she has followed lower courts as well. And she says there's a very worrying trend there in that lower court opinions are getting nasty, which they never used to be. Um, and she blames this on Scalia because the argument is if he can do it there, we can do it here. And um, now, this is not how the lower courts used to work. The um, uh, Fourth Circuit in Richmond, um, I think, still does it after an argument. The judges come down from the bench and shake the hands of uh, you know, good Southern manners. And, and I think Erwin Chemerinsky, who's the dean of UC Irvine Law School, says he's seeing it leach into, into law students' writing, that law students now have that sort of flip, snarky, applesauce, jiggery-pokery yeah flair that uh, worries Not him. Not to mention argle-bargle. Argle-bargle. <laughs> so I want to talk about the second, the second sort of valence of constitutional dialogue. The first is intra-court. The second is intra-institution, uh, and that's when the court talks to 
the Congress or the, the court president. talks to the president. So maybe discuss a little bit um, what it means for a justice to step out of their role of trying to persuade their colleagues and just says to Congress, you know what I think you should do? I think you should change the law. Well, um, this has been going on a long time. I think one of the earliest examples I use is when in the 1840s, Congress um, uh, passed a measure uh, regarding the collection of uh, tariffs. You know, it, was a con it was a minor, but they left something out, uh, probably by accident. And that was a legal remedy if someone thought that they had been uh, taxed erroneously. And uh, a case was brought, and the court said, they left it out. They must have meant it. You don't have that remedy anymore. And uh, Joseph Story wrote a dissent in which essentially he spoke to Congress. He said, you could not possibly have meant this. Put it back in. <laughs> Congress put it back in before that year's volume of U.S. reports came out. I mean, he was right. They had forgotten to do that. Um, and we had, what was the name of the, uh, Lily? Um, Ledbetter. Lily Ledbetter. Uh, Justice Ginsburg's thing to Congress said, you know, Scalia's interpretation is stupid. And um, it would have gone through Congress much faster, except George W. Bush threatened to veto it. And if you remember when uh, Barack Obama became president, the first thing he said to Congress was, repass that bill and I'll sign it. They did, and he did. And um, so you do have that sort of thing in the dissent. When it, this is only in the case, by the way, of statutory interpretation. If the court holds that you can't do anything because it's constitutionally prohibited, then the only way to change that is through constitutional amendment or a change on the court. Uh, but for statutory interpretation, most of the time, if a statute is held wrong, sometimes it can be fixed very easily, and the majority and the dissent will both tell Congress, you can fix it, do it. So that's part of that dialogue, and the same thing holds true for the most part with the president and the administrative agencies, which are technically part of the executive branch. And, and that brings us to uh, the third and I think maybe most romantic idea of constitutional dialogue, which is talking across history. So now you're not just talking to your colleagues, you're not just talking to other branches. What you're saying is, hey, future, right. I think the court is really going to muck this up. And so here is my sort of bright light of hope that somebody gets it right down the pike. The, um, the way the book is structured is in between um, the chapters, I put something I called mise-en-scene, which are ca mini case studies of particular dissents and how they affected the constitutional dialogue. Um, I won't use Brandeis again because I use them all the time, but one of them that I um, was Hugo Black. And Hugo Black, aside from being a senator, was at, in the early 40s the only member of the court who had criminal justice experience as a lawyer back in his uh, native Alabama. And the case came up whether or not someone needed a lawyer, and the court held that except in um, capital cases, the state did not have to provide a lawyer to the poor. And Black wrote a dissent in which he said that um, no one without a lawyer can properly defend themselves in a criminal case. Um, 
this descent was like Banco's ghost for the next 20 years on every case that came up saying, I didn't have a lawyer. Until finally, the court reversed itself in Gideon versus Wainwright, a very famous case. You may remember Henry Fonda as Gideon. Um, and Earl Warren was uh, generous enough um, to tell Black he should write the opinion. And Black told um, one of his clerks, uh, Dick Howard, whom you probably know, that um, I never thought I would live to see this. But every time a case came up, now there had to be special circumstances. The court kept putting itself in like a pretzel, trying to get around Black's descent because it just made such perfectly good sense. Um, he, not everybody lives to see their descent. Uh, Brandeis wrote two of the really great descents in American history. Um, his clerks all report that when they worked on a descent uh, through various iterations, finally he would say, okay, now I think it's convincing. How do we make it educational? And it was Brandeis who told the law reviews that they should start criticizing court decisions. Um, he did not live to see his dissents on privacy and free speech, but he always said, my faith in time is great. And eventually the court caught up with him because what he was saying was so powerful that um, they eventually had to come to grips with it. Now, I also say in the book that the vast majority of dissents, like a good majority of the majority opinions, are quickly and justly forgotten, um, especially Felix Frankfurter's, who, uh, <laughs> well, you know, um, I teach constitutional history, and I have friends who teach constitutional law in law schools, and I've done that too, and the only Frankfurter dissents that are ever taught are used as worst-case examples. Uh, none of them ever convinced the court to change its mind. Um, but Brandeis's did, Black's did, um, Ginsburg, I think, uh, has written some very important dissents. And um, I have a chapter in there on uh, Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan on um, capital cases, you know, their um, crusade against capital punishment. So, um, you know, these people do have a sense that um, if their colleagues don't get it now, they may someday. So, so that leads inexorably to an incredibly unfair question. But do you have a favorite dissent, one that has all the hallmarks of what you would call an exquisitely crafted, pitch-perfect? Oh, yes. <laughs> Are you going to share? Only if you say please. Please, please. What Olmstead versus the United States. Let me tell you about this. It takes place during Prohibition. Roy Olmstead was a policeman in Seattle, Washington, and decided he could make more money as a bootlegger. And he takes a look around, he realizes that the bootleg industry is terribly disorganized. And I've always said that they ought to use Roy Olmsted at the Harvard Business School as a case study in how to organize a business. So he sets up a bootlegging operation. Uh, this was not, you know, the bathroom hooch. He brought in the good stuff from Canada on fast boats. He bought a farm out near the river so the police wouldn't see it. His brother, by the way, stayed on the police force so he could find out when there was going to be a raid. And you could call up, you know, 
uh, I don't know how they answered the phone, but whatever it was, uh, I'm having a party tonight and I need a case of this or that. And you'd have it within two hours. Uh, he made a lot of money. Not only that, everybody knew what he was doing because prohibition was not very popular out in Seattle. Um, he married a Deb. Uh, he became a philanthropist and gave money to all the local. Everybody loved Roy Olmsted, except the feds. The local police gave up a long time ago. The feds put wiretaps on both his house and his business. Now, we're not talking anything sophisticated here. A couple of alligator clips on the wires outside. And they listened in, and they got enough evidence. They went to court, and he was convicted. And he appeals to the Supreme Court on the grounds that there was no warrant for um, the, uh, the wiretapping. Um, five members of the court signed on to an opinion by Chief Justice Taft that was wooden in its writing. They never went in the House, therefore there was no violation of the Fourth Amendment. Brandeis writes a dissent that, first of all, completely turned around what the Fourth Amendment meant in that it protects people, not places. And, that, and then he added uh, the notion of a constitutional right to privacy, the right most valued by free men. It took 40 years for the privacy part to eventually win out uh, it took less time for the Fourth Amendment, but he completely rewrote the Fourth Amendment by instead of having the focus on did they enter a place or not, is did they violate the confidentiality of a person. Um, so that, I think, is my favorite dissent. Is there a difference between a great writer and a great dissenter? Are there great writers of majority opinions who just can't write a good dissent to save their soul? Um, no, not that I know of. I mean, we, the Supreme Court members, all hundred and whatever there are now, are with few exceptions not known for style. Uh, there was Holmes, who was always a pleasure to read. And I used to like to read Scalia's opinions. I mean, I used to you know, turn red in the face because I didn't agree with him. But he was the only member of the court who could write with any finesse. Um, I'll miss him if for no other reason than that. Um, Brandeis wrote two really great opinions that are stylistically good, but for the most part, he was not a great writer. Um, Douglas could write pretty well. Um, but you don't read, you know, I, one of the things when I teach the course is I, I sort of apologize to my students ahead of time about how bad the writing is going to be in the cases they're going to have to read. So it's, um, and that does happen. They're not good writers. I, I feel that I would be remiss if I didn't point out that one of the great ironies of dissent history will be Justice Scalia's dissents in the precursors to the gay marriage cases, mm. where in the Doma case and in Lawrence versus Texas, the Texas sodomy case, he pretty much wrote what would become the majority opinions in the lower court cases going yeah. forward. So he said, oh boy, if you let this happen, here's what's going to happen yeah. next. And boy, did it happen next. Uh, in the Doma case, which is the um, um, Defense of Marriage Act was held, you know, Part 3 was held unconstitutional, and Scalia had a fit. 
Uh, what it said was that the federal government had to recognize for tax purposes legitimate same-sex marriage in those states which recognized it. And Justice Kennedy tried very, very hard to make this a states' rights federalism thing, but words like due process and equal protection kept sliding in. And Scalia wrote a really nasty dissent. He said, this is what they're going to do. And, you were, and the next day, the ACLU in Pennsylvania and Virginia walked into federal court, and I swear they were carrying Scalia's dissent and checking off you know, all the points that they had to make. And um, so that became actually one of the most effective dissents ever written. Right. <laughs> and, and unhappily so for Justice Scalia, yeah. but I think he, he laid the map. So I think I want to ask, uh, an existential question, because it's that time. Um, and, and it's this. I think that you make such a persuasive case in your book that great descents change history. Great descents, truly great descents, see who we want to be before we can get there ourselves, and they light the way toward becoming better. And I think I want to ask the question that is, are there great descents that don't get us there? Are there descents that just by sheer happenstance don't manage to light the way to where well, we need to be? Um, there are two descents that I'm in the Dred Scott case in 1857. That's the case where Chief Justice Taney said an African-American could never be a citizen. And there are two very, very good descents there. But they never really had uh, they played a role in the 1858 Lincoln-Douglas debates and in the 1860 presidential election. Then came the Civil War and solved the problem. So they never had that. Um, and then there are some that um, Kathleen Sullivan says, great descents sometimes are like buried ammunition, waiting to go off when you least expect it. And one of those was the first Justice Harlan's dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson, which set up the separate but equal. And what's amazing is that this dissent was forgotten for the next almost 50 years. Um, someone did a study of constitutional law textbooks in um, 1948, and Harlan's dissent in Plessy wasn't included in a single one of them. In fact, Felix Frankfurter wrote some article which dismissing Harlan as a crank. But then this idea that the Constitution is colorblind comes roaring back in 1954. Even though it wasn't specifically cited there, it's cited thereafter for a whole variety of purposes, including the same-sex marriage cases. So sometimes it's hard to tell, you know, dissent can sort of slide by and then come charging back there. Um, you note in your book, and, and this was a dissent that really um, was powerful for me as a Supreme Court reporter, uh, and that was Sonia Sotomayor's dissent in the Schutte case in the Michigan. There was a Michigan affirmative action case, and Sonia Sotomayor, who'd been quite careful, I think, not to talk explicitly about race, um, pretty much from her con confirmation hearings on, I think she was a little tender about how she wanted to talk about it. And suddenly in the Schutte decision, she unfurled a deeply personal dissent. Uh, you know, and the case was sort of technically very complicated. It wasn't exactly an affirmative action case. It wasn't even, as it turns out, we now know this was meant to be her dissent in a 
in Fisher in the yeah. Texas uh, affirmative action case, and she kind of shelled it and, and unspooled it in Shooty. But I wonder if you would talk a little bit about the deeply personal dissent when a justice more or less says some version of what Thurgood Marshall used to say, which is, you have no idea what my right. life looks like. The case, by the way, was after, in 2003, the Supreme Court upheld affirmative action at the University of Michigan Law School. And opponents of affirmative action then put through a constitutional amendment in Michigan saying that race could, under no circumstances, be taken into account for admission to any state university. And that was challenged, and the court upheld it, saying people have a right to, you know, they're not discriminating against anyone. They're saying they just can't use this. And she wrote um, a dissent there. Um, if you've read her memoir, she very proudly says, I'm an affirmative action baby, makes no bones about it. Um, she came from a background that normally would not have seen her go first to Princeton and then to Yale Law School. And um, she is grateful for it, makes no bones about it, and believes that others should have that same opportunity. And that, as far as she was concerned, the court was cutting off a chance for people like her um, to make it in this world. Uh, Thurgood Marshall, um, as, as you mentioned, you know, um, Sandra Day O'Connor, um, after Marshall's death, said he kept telling us stories. You know, he would sit back, and um, my son and I interviewed him a couple of times for a project we were working on, and that's how he was interviewed. He said, well, let me tell you about that, and he would tell you a story. And the stories were horrendous sometimes. I mean, what he had seen, what he had gone through. Um, but this is sort of like the, the question we mentioned before, people who have experience. And on this court, there's Clarence Thomas, who found his affirmative action experience embittering, um, and uh, Sonia Sotomayor, who found it, you know, she owes it, and she was quite willing to do it. And she apparently, according to uh, Joan Biskupic, got the Fisher case sent back because she threatened to essentially call the rest of the court racist if they didn't uh, do something like that. Um, I'm, I am sure that Scalia must have loved that. You know, uh, in the book that uh, Biskupic wrote, Scalia says she's going to be a troublemaker. And I think <laughs> he's she, absolutely and right. she is. Yeah. I think that uh, it's probably fair to say, well, you tell me if it's fair to say. It seems to me that there's a tone in Sotomayor's shooty descent. There's often a tone in some of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's gender descents where you almost feel, maybe this is the fourth layer to our constitutional dialogue, that they're not even talking to the court. They're not talking to other institutions. They're not even talking to the future. They're talking to the young women who are sitting at home with their tote yep. bags, their RBG tote bags, and they're saying, <laughs> you fix this because uh, I give up on this court. I think there's a little bit of that in, in Shooty, where I think what, what Sotomayor is saying is, you have no idea what it's yeah. like to be a Latina and told you don't belong here. Uh, Brandeis did a little bit of this in his fact-laden dissents. He says, this is why this law was passed. And I'm telling the legislature, you do have it right. You just have to work on it. Um, 
But I think that Marshall, on, uh, especially in the capital punishment cases involving um, uh, black uh, defendants, um, and he used to tell um, his colleagues, uh, or I remember Harry Blackman. Here's a story. Harry Blackman comes on the court, and he's not opposed to capital punishment. And Thurgood Marshall tells him, you don't have the life experience. You don't empathize with these people. Finally, towards the end of his career, Blackman writes a dissent in a capital punishment case in which he says, I will no longer tinker with the machinery of death. And when he gets back to his chambers, Marshall, who had already stepped down from the court, had sent over a note, you done well. Um, you know, you finally have the sense. And take a look at, you know, a lot of the cases that you read, the opinions, seem as you say, sort of formal, now they're out there. One of the things that has struck me about the um, Kennedy opinions in the homosexual cases and same-sex marriage is the empathy, which is highly unusual for a Supreme Court uh, case. I mean, he's really empathetic to uh, these people, which of course had Scalia jumping all over him, but it's, it's wonderful to read those. I mean, there's a a human element there that is missing from an awful lot of uh, Supreme Court cases. I think it's, it's, and we can talk about this in the Q&A, but a little bit of function of having justices who went to two law schools, three if you count uh, Justice yeah. Ginsburg graduating from a third, but really I think coming from a stratum that is so disaggregated from the actual practice of, of law in the courts. Um, we're going to take questions and we're going to ask you to go to the microphones to do that. And I'm going to implore you to be respectful of folks' times and uh, to phrase your question in the form of a question. Um, and um, I'm going to just try to be as uh, vigilant as I can about making this be timely. So why don't we start here? Does, is Lochner a dissent as significant as the attention that it seems to get? Ah, um, I mean the Holmes dissent in Lochner. It's very important. Um, because, actually, there are two dissents in Lochner. Lochner was a... Um, I, I think, yeah, explain Lochner for yeah. a minute. I Lochner guess. was a New York hours law that was held unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1905. There were two dissents. One was by the first Justice Harlan, which for many years I thought was the better dissent because it spoke directly to what the majority was saying. But the Holmes dissent turned out to be more important because for the first time, Holmes brought in this notion of judicial restraint and uh, introduced the idea of essentially the rational basis test, that if rational people think this is a good law, then we as judges have no business doing that. And that became really the bedrock upon which a whole school of jurisprudence arose. So yeah, the dissent was important there. Could you uh, expand on Justice Curtis's dissent in Dred Scott? Um, he opposed, uh, Dred Scott, you know, was the, the famous pre-Civil War case. Um, Curtis um, essentially, you know, tore Taney's opinion apart because it made no sense. I mean, Taney's history was bad. His, it wasn't even the case of racial prejudice so much because um, racial prejudice was widespread, not just in the South. 
Um, but Tani said they can't be a citizen. Well, free blacks have been citizens in northern states since before the revolution. Um, he said that Congress couldn't legislate for the territories. Well, who else was going to legislate for the territories? And it just took Tawney's opinion piece by piece. I mean, he shredded it. And it gave the Republican Party, which was just in its birth throes, as it were, um, a great deal of ammunition in the next election. But as I said, then came the Civil War, and that solved the problem. You're talking about dissent, and we now have a court of eight people. So the Senate is lodging a dissent. Is this court the most politicized court in American history? Wow. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, if you take a look back in the early part of the New Deal, where you know the four horsemen kept striking down New Deal measures, uh, they were pretty political then. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what this court does now. Um, since Scalia's death, there's been, what, two cases that have been sent back on four-four ties? Mm -hmm. And there's been one uh, eight-to-nothing, not nine-to-nothing, one eight-to-nothing decision. Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote that on the apportionment. Um, there are all the cases that were heard prior to Scalia's death including one I'm very interested in, the Fisher case, the affirmative action case, where we know how Scalia voted, but once he died, those votes, any opinions he wrote, were all canceled. Um, it's a, a hamstrung court. And um, what's going to happen is I think a lot of the issues that might have been resolved now are going to come back to the court. They're going to have to come back to the court because a 4-4 tie leaves the lower court decision in place, but it doesn't set a precedent. And uh, the fact that the four liberals were appointed by Democrats and the four conservatives by Republicans doesn't always tell you everything you want to know. Um, after all, it was Kennedy, a Republican appointee, who wrote the same-sex marriage cases. Uh, Breyer has occasionally, on criminal law, shown up on the conservative side. And um, Scalia was an ardent defender of free speech. So, thank you. And, and, and I think I would just add, depending on how you define politicized court, that we do know that this is the first court where every Democrat you know, was appointed by a Democrat. Every Republican was appointed by a Republican. We know that this is really one of the first courts where all clerks come from feeder judges who are either feeder judges that are you know, R or a feeder judge that is D. In, in one profound sense, there are not surprises anymore. Adam Liptak has done a lot of no. work on the extent to which this court is absolutely riven in ways we haven't seen, um, and that the goes all the way sort of down. I do think that a little bit of, of the answer to the question is this court is going to strive to not look political. I think it's fair to say that John Roberts' great hero is John Marshall, and that when we've seen in the past John Roberts decide to not uh, be ideological, it's to preserve institutional prerogatives. And I think what we've seen in the last few weeks on a 4-4 court is a block that is made of Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito, 
descending together and John Roberts trying to figure out ways to remove himself from that divide and find a different way to get through these cases. I think that's what we're going to see in the near term. But there will be cases. We don't know which ones yet, but there will be cases that have five votes. Um, Kennedy is the key question here. Um, no one really, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a short story, uh, and then we'll get to the question, if you will. Just hold on one second. Um, after, when the first same-sex marriage cases were being appealed up to the Supreme Court in the fall of 2015, the court refused to take them, leaving the lower court decision in place. Now, I couldn't figure out why, because it only takes four votes to grant cert, and what was happening here. And what I later found out, and this was um, both Joan Biskupic and Tony Morrow had the same thing, is the four conservatives didn't want to take the case because they didn't know how Kennedy was going to vote. And the four liberals didn't want to take the case because they didn't know how Kennedy was going to vote. So they finally left alone until finally they had a clash of circuits where they had to take it. But Kennedy was the question mark all along. He's a question mark now, too. Well, first of all, as a non-lawyer, thank you for stimulating presentation on what I guess is the most unusual Supreme Court in the world. <laughs> um, I visited the court uh, a few months ago on my own prerogative, and uh, it was pretty exciting. Having said that credential and presented it, I do not understand how we tolerated 10 years of silence from a Supreme Court justice. I'm serious. There must, be a, there must have been a way, and there still must be a way. I know we started to talk again after Scalia's <laughs> death, but there should have been a way to change that. Well, no, actually, Clarence Thomas is unusual in how far he takes it. But there have been many judges who don't believe in this, uh, what should we call, fanatic questioning from, you know, aggressive questioning from the bench. They want to hear what the lawyers have to say. Um, He's taken it to a greater extreme than others, but he is certainly far from being the only one who believes that judges ask too many questions there and that they ought to shut up sometimes and let the lawyers make their case. Well, that's very nice of you, but it seemed to me when I visited like anger, silence and anger, anyhow, with all due respect. I, I think that um, it's, it's always important to say that the caricature version of Clarence Thomas kind of glowering there angrily at the bench is, is simply not borne out in his conduct day to day. No. And if you ask any elevator operator, if you ask any law clerk, if you ask anyone in the building who the most vivacious, gregarious, warm justices, he knows everyone by name. And it's a fascinating psychological question why he takes all that buoyant personality and locks it down on the bench. But I think that it's really sort of an interesting story. I would actually commend his autobiography to people who are curious. But this is a person who, in his day-to-day -day interaction, visits more elementary schools, hangs out with more children, goes to NASCAR. I mean, he's just got one affect on the bench and another affect. Plus, he's got one of the really great voices. The only voice greater than his is James Earl Jones. I mean, it's a fantastic voice. I mean, when he opens his mouth to talk to you, you sort of, you know, 
Yes, sir. Would it be fair to say um, that in many instances, a divided court um, better facilitates uh, the principal development of the law because each justice brings a different principle uh, into the mix um, that better evolves the law. For instance, a third good marshal emphasized the impact of the law on people. Uh, Scalia, uh, in an equally valid way, uh, emphasizes educative notice and clarity in the law. Both are important principles. Well, everybody brings something. And while we sometimes make fun or sort of dismiss some justices, no, they shouldn't be there. The fact is, they're all very bright people. Um, I wish, and I think Dahlia does too, that some had some political experience that would, is sorely missing. Um, but they do bring different perspectives to it. And um, sometimes they get flack for this, uh, you know, for letting their personal, like Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Marshall, for letting their personal um, interests. But it's their life history. It's what they bring to the bench. Um, uh, the late Jerome Frank once said, you, you don't stop being the person you were when you put the black robe on. And um, it would have been very surprising, for instance, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to go on the bench and not be, remain a champion of women's equality. It would have been um, unbelievable if Thurgood Marshall had suddenly thrown over 30 years of working for the, you know, the Legal Defense Fund when he went on the bench. Um, the problem is that sometimes um, it takes more than one case to develop a really sound jurisprudential principle. Uh, one of the rules that the court tries to follow, and I think for the most part does, is not to decide any more than they absolutely have to decide in a particular case. This is very much a common law approach. We decide just this. We don't decide that. That's for another case. But it's very incremental, and sometimes it takes a long time until these guys work and women work out exactly what it is that they're, they're trying to get at. They've been working on affirmative action now for a long time. And I hope they don't resolve it this year because I'm writing a book on that. And I, I, if they resolve it, then my book, you know, I don't have to write it. I'll read it anyway. <laughs> Thank you. And maybe, maybe it's also just worth noting, because we haven't talked about the ugly confirmation word, but there is something about the confirmation process as it's constituted today, which has such a flattening effect on discourse. And that I think you get very, very cartoonish versions of yeah. what is originalism, what is judicial activism, and that, you know, these confirmation hearings have the potential to be really teachable moments about doctrine and how courts work, and instead we just do these kind of reality shows that are just drink-inducing. Well, the only justification that I've ever heard that made any sense is this is the only time that the Congress, particularly the Senate, can talk to the court and say, we don't like this, we don't like that. Because once the person is confirmed, they're confirmed for life. Um, the dialogue is over for them so that the confirmation hearings are less the nominee saying what I believe 
and the senator's getting a chance. You guys there have gone too far like that. Go ahead. How do the justices decide, make their final decision? Do they bring the case in, in a room and discuss and debate and try to persuade? They argue, coming on the table sometimes, or how does it work out? When a case comes to the Supreme Court on appeal, it takes four votes for the court to hear it. Okay, four, four of the nine justices have to say, I think we should hear this case. The case is then there's an elaborate process. They file briefs, counter briefs, and eventually the clerk of the court calls the lawyers and says, your case is going to be argued on Monday, whatever the day is. Uh, the normal procedure is one hour per case with each side getting 30 minutes. With, once the case is submitted, as the chief justice says, bangs his gavel, time's up, case submitted, they go to the conference room. Not immediately. I think the, you know, they meet, what, twice a week now? Friday, I think. Friday and Wednesday sometimes. if it's, And there they start with the chief justice first, working down to the least, no, the, the young, newest member. And they take a vote. And then if the chief justice is in the majority, he assigns the case, either to himself or to one of the other people in, in the majority. If the chief justice is in the minority on that vote, then the senior justice in the majority assigns the case. Um, and they then go back to their chambers and they work on it. Um, some judges use their clerks to write a lot more than others do. Rehnquist made no bones that his clerks wrote a, most of his opinions, but then he edited them. Um, and then they start passing them around. So if there's a dissent and it comes to, and it's a very powerful dissent, you may have somebody on the majority peeling off, and now the dissent becomes the majority opinion. Most of the time that doesn't happen, but there is that give and take, that dialogue that we were talking about before. You said this, do you really mean this? Or if you mean that, I think I can't go with you on this. So okay. it's, it's a long, pro which is why if a case is heard in October, November, you may not get a, a, a decision until March or April or even later. So when you say dialogue, you mean trying to persuade each other into mm -hmm. agreeing to my side? Yep. And that kind of, I think. Yeah, and sometimes changing a mind. Oh, yeah. I, like, for instance, when you wrote this, is this what you meant? I see. Okay, because if you meant that, that's a problem. Uh, and very often the guy who wrote says, no, no, that's not what I meant. He'll rewrite it to keep it narrow. Okay? Thank you. I can understand why the court has to have, wants to have an odd number of justices on the court, but I understand it doesn't have to be nine. So therefore, let's say another justice leaves the court, why can't there just be seven justices on the Supreme Court? Well, and, uh, the number has varied yes. from six to 10 over the years. And Roosevelt wanted to pack the court. Yeah, and he wanted to add more, which he didn't, couldn't. Um, Nine seems to be, at this point, hallowed by tradition. Wouldn't how you many, say that? Yeah. How many years has it been nine? A long, long, a time. long time. Back into the 19th century, the 18... There were 10 during the Civil War, and then it went back to nine, and it's been so nine since then. theoretically, it could be seven. It could be any number. Okay. Um, the odd number is so there's no tie, but I mean, it could be 37. <laughs> it's just tradition that yeah. it's nine. Also, okay, you. you really can't put more than nine chairs 
at the bench and it won't fit. <laughs> you have a kid's table at the, the end. Kids, yeah. Well, they could take over the reporter's table. Exactly. And sit the, yeah. Okay, thank you. Right. Okay, we, we are now ready to close the program. Melvin Urofsky, Dahlia Lithwick, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Fun. Just, just a reminder that Dissent and the Supreme Court is now waiting for you in the museum store, and uh, Melvin Urofsky will be signing books. Thank you all so much for coming. <laughs>